0: Amen. Sometimes you hear it said, don't you? God will never give you more than you can handle. And at first, that sounds reasonable, even somewhat fair. It's like, well, I've got only so much strength, and uh, God's going to just make sure that there's not going to be any hardship that's going to be out of proportion with that. God will never give you more than you can handle. The problem with this notion is that that's not something the Bible tells you. What if actually there are stories and scenes in the Scriptures where the biblical characters are facing all over the place things well beyond their strength? Circumstances and hardships that have outmatched their abilities, cleverness, and prowess. What if we notice that even in the Psalms, this kind of thing crops up over and over again? If someone were to say to David, God will never give you anything more than, ha- than you can handle. David might say, did you ever read Psalm 18? You might not have. For in Psalm 18, he is reflecting on God's intervening strength when David faced... More than he could handle. When we read of these things. These scenes and these stories. These psalms. We are beholding the rescuing grace of God. His intervening power. And what we come to realize. Is that the the biblical stories are not trying to highlight. How mighty we are. Instead. And most appropriately so. The biblical stories are exalting the power and strength of God. Psalm 18 is one of the longest psalms in the book. We are not looking at all of it today. Some of you are quite relieved, actually, because you you turned what needed to be probably an entire Bible page to get to the end of it. And so this is part one of two, looking at Psalm 18. One of the longest, though, in the whole book. Psalm 78 and Psalm 119 are longer. So the third longest psalm, in the whole book of psalms, is a psalm of David, and it has a heading, a superscription. To the choir master, a psalm of David, there's the statement of authorship. And now David describes himself with some language that's actually quite longer than a normal superscription. We're used to seeing things like a psalm of David, and then getting right to the content of the psalm. This is a bit longer, isn't it? Several lines, lines long. David, he calls himself here the servant of the Lord who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies. And then one of those enemies is mentioned, from the hand of Saul. And then David says the following words as the content of the psalm. David calls himself here the servant of the Lord, not only giving his his name as the author of the psalm, but reminding us an appropriate title for him, servant of the Lord. At first... We look at a phrase like this and we think, well, there are plenty of people in the Old Testament who serve the Lord. So maybe you'd expect this phrase would be just found all over the place. This person's a servant of the Lord. That person's a servant of the Lord. It's certainly the case that the term servant is used in a multitude of characters. But this is a particular phrase here. Servant of Yahweh. And if you look at this servant of Yahweh as a whole phrase, a whole title, it's actually not common at all. Servant of Yahweh is used in the Old Testament of only two other people besides David. Moses and Joshua. Moses and Joshua. Servant of Yahweh. So certainly the Lord has many servants in the Old Testament. But very particularly this phrase appears most dominantly about Moses' life. Where he was a servant of Yahweh. And then in the book of Joshua, David refers to himself here as a servant of Yahweh. Someone like Moses, someone like Joshua. We are reminded of why those two earlier Old Testament characters are quite important. Moses leads the Israelites through the mighty Exodus, out of Egyptian captivity and toward a land of promise. Joshua's name plays into this because he's actually the one leading them over the Jordan River to occupy the land of inheritance. Moses and Joshua experienced the hand of God's deliverance, God's faithfulness and his promise keeping power, the enemies of God that had aligned themselves against Moses or against Joshua. What has God done over and over again in those stories? Well, David prays it will happen again for his own life. That what Joshua and Moses before him experienced was the steadfast love of the Lord, the rescuing grace of God, and that his promises and might would be on display. This is a song of thanksgiving. David says that this is a psalm on the day when the Lord delivered him out from the hand of his enemies, from the hand of Saul. You look through the life of David and you realize this was not a a king who was always escaping suffering and affliction in terms of not experiencing it. Instead, David knows what it is to suffer and a whole multitude of psalms in book one of the psalms, which comprises one to forty one. So many of these psalms of David are suffering psalms. But in the hardship of David. What has he noticed over and over again? The goodness of the Lord. In his affliction and in his suffering, what is it that he can reflect on that was true time and a time and time again? The faithfulness and power of the Lord. This is a psalm that's rightfully long. Because David is going to reflect at length on the goodness and might and faithfulness and power of God. David devotes more space to the faithfulness of God than he does in reflecting on his own sufferings in earlier psalms. This is rightfully a long psalm because David is remembering what God has done. And that shouldn't be something that takes up just brief space in our minds. This long psalm, it is something that is warranted by who God is and what God has done in David's life. In verses 1-3, to there are titles of the Lord. He could just say, I love you, Lord. But the Lord means a variety of things to David. David's whole life is caught up in what it means to know and follow God. And so he proclaims, it's like a a, a burst of, of joyful proclamation right at the opening. I love you, O Lord. Statement of intimacy and fellowship. Of communion and adoration. David does not have a mind aloof from God. He does not have a mind indifferent to the things of God. David loves God with his heart. And there are many things in our lives that have relative affection and love to- uh, from our hearts toward that thing or toward that person. And we can use the language, oh, I love this, or I love him, I love her, I love them, I love that. We, we use this language to describe the things that are meaningful to us. And David knows that God Most High, the living God and maker of heaven and earth, ought to be most cherished and prized and treasured within our hearts. And David rightly says, as should all the saints of God, I love you, O Lord. What is God to David? A myriad of, of titles. In fact, in verses 1 and 2, there are more titles compressed here than in any other small space in the whole book of Psalms right here in verses one and two the whole list of them it's wonderful just piling on together and there's some overlap and that's the point but for David he gets started writing about who God is and he doesn't stop anytime soon he starts out with saying God is my strength Now, David was not necessarily a physically weak person, we might imagine. Here he is as a king, as he's writing this psalm. He's not a young man anymore. And yet for David, his own physical might is not what brings him most comfort. Rather, God himself is David's strength. And David's known this for a long time. He has a memory, you know, of Goliath. He knows what it is to be a young man outmatched by a taller and more fearsome giant. But he knows what it is for God to be his strength. There, Whereas Goliath is relying on shields and spears and height and power, none of that is greater than God. So David has learned from a young man that God, O Lord, you are my strength, my rock, in verse 2, my fortress. Rock and fortress may go nicely together as a pair because to be in the cleft of the rock or to be in a place lifted up from one's enemy's reach, this may be in view that God is... A place for David to have refuge. A place of solidity. A place of surety. He is his rock and his fortress. His deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge. That phrase in verse 2, in whom I take refuge, seems to confirm that we're thinking rightly about what it means for God to be David's rock and fortress. Friend, you will take refuge in something. You will put all your hope and money or pleasures of this life. You will hope in your reputation and your honor among others. You will look to something as what brings your life comfort. And I want you to listen to the words of David. Because David knows that there's nothing this earth can give you that is your rock and refuge. There is only God. There's only God who's greater than all he has made. And that all the good gifts that have come from God are but to glimpse his greater supremacy, beauty, wisdom, and goodness. David says rightly, I love you, Lord, and here is what you are to me. I wonder if you would say these things about God. That if you were to be given a quill, or a pen if we update it, uh, and a piece of paper, and you were to write out what God is to you. I wonder if such titles as these would come to mind. God is one in whom He takes refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation. You know, a shield protects what matters. It is to be put forward in the face of the onslaught of the enemy. The enemy's blows with hands or perhaps weapons. But the shield is so important. Oh, but greater, greater than any military shield is Yahweh. Yahweh is David's shield. David has a whole army of shields. But that's not what David hopes in. David's shield is the Lord, the horn of my salvation. The word horn is no doubt referencing the strength and power like the horns on an animal that would overcome anything that it could trample. And here the horn of David's salvation, what rises with might and supremacy it is Yahweh. David says, you are my stronghold. Stronghold makes us think of fortress as well, a place high in the rock. Removed and delivered from the enemies of Yahweh. David says, I love you, Lord. This is who you are. So he's borrowing from things that he's familiar with. He knows that there are rocks around him, and he says, God is my rock. He knows what his shield is, he says, God is my shield. He knows what it is to have a fortress. He's, he lives in a palace, he's a mighty king. He knows what it is to have impenetrable fortresses in the ancient Near East. And so he borrows this language and he says, oh, you can most appropriately say this of God. And given who God is, it makes sense that David does what he does in verse three. So what do I do if God is my strength and rock, my fortress and deliverer, my refuge and stronghold? I call upon him. Why wouldn't I? You will trust in what you take refuge in. And David here is calling upon the Lord his refuge. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. And I am saved from my enemies. I am saved from my enemies. David knows what it is by experience. To have the faithfulness and delivering power of Yahweh at work in his life. And God is worthy of David's praise. Do you believe this this morning? That God is worthy to be praised. We should think about that truth as as God's image bearers. Because he's made us to worship him and to exalt his name. But it's not something detached from actual worth. It would be quite strange if someone you know expected worldwide worship. I think all the nations should praise me in fact. And you think to yourself, well, I see a, a lot of problems with that assertion. You know, Something wrong in the heart and mind of someone expecting some kind of global adoration. And one of the core problems with that, of course, would be a lack of worth. Uh, That there's not a worthiness for this person to be exalted in all the earth. This is what is different about Yahweh, you see. When you start considering that the scriptures call us to worship and exalt the Lord, all of this is tied to what we can realize about His worth. He is worthy to be praised. So David says, "Listen, I was saved from my enemies." Now he doesn't name his enemies as if they were particular peoples and nations, though when you look at First and Second Samuel, David is delivered from various peoples and nations from time to time too. Instead, he personifies his enemies by using language like the cords of death, torrents of destruction, cords of shields, snares of death. He is trying to depict his distress, which was no doubt in in various earthly conditions and circumstances, in terms of the spiritual powers and forces at work against David. And he says, here I was, and I was all entangled by them. I was overcome and tied up with them. The cords of death encompassed me. In verse 5, cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. Verse 4 also mentions the torrents of destruction, which is not just an image of cords, but actually a violent water. If a torrential downpours are happening, you might think of a torrential rain, a torrents of destruction envisions water that you don't want to be caught up in. You don't want to be driving in it. You don't want to be walking in it. You don't want to be swimming in it. Torrents of destruction is something that can bring you to destruction. David says, well, that's what I was facing. It was more than I can handle. All of it around me, consuming and overcoming. In my distress, in verse 6, I called upon the Lord. To my God I cried for help. From His temple He heard my voice. And my cry to Him reached His ears. David here is reflecting on, here I have faced all manner of distresses and hardships. Surrounded by and entangled by all kinds of cords and snares. And you know who I can always count on? The Lord. can call on the Lord. And the Lord is not deaf to His people. The Lord hears His people. So the psalmist's distress in verses 4-6 to six is depicted there with those cords and torrents of destruction, those snares of death that were right in David's face. So he calls on the Lord and the Lord now responds. Now the imagery of the Lord's response is spectacular. I love to read this language because it depicts the Lord arriving with such full-on, thunderous power that nothing can withstand Him and everything is moving from His way so that He comes with such delivering strength that nothing is unclear about who delivered David. Instead, in verses 7-15, through the coming of the Lord reminds us of maybe even the Lord's descent upon Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. David described himself in the superscription as a servant of the Lord. We think of Moses, we think of Joshua as earlier servants of Yahweh. I'm going to suggest to you that language here in verses 7-15 through are actually going to depict David's rescue by God in terms of God arriving like Sinai scenes. Or accomplishing deliverance and, uh, and, uh, and conquest like the days of Joshua. So, David, the servant of the Lord, he says, Here's what happened in verses 7 through 15. The earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. The righteous anger of the Lord has been provoked. What is it that has provoked the righteous anger of the Lord? The cords of Sheol and the snares of death are entangling David. And the righteous and faithful and steadfast love of the Lord is not indifferent to David, but comes with rescuing grace. And it's as if the whole earth can't bear the arrival of the presence of the Lord. It starts to move. The foundations of the mountains tremble and quake. In verse 8, smoke went up from his nostrils and fire from his mouth and coals forth from him. If you go to Exodus 19, the descent of the glory and power of the Lord on Sinai involves quaking on a mountain. It involves smoke and fire. And here again, it's as if David is experiencing, let's call it his own personal Sinai. It's as if God, the God of the mountain where Moses and the Israelites encountered his power and voice. It is this God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses, who's coming to deliver David. And he says in verse 9, he bowed the heavens and came down. They weren't any obstacle to him. Thick darkness was under his feet and he rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. It's like the scenes in the movie We're the people who are overwhelmed by circumstances and see no way out. And all of a sudden, the the gradual buildup of the score and the music in the background starts to build. And then from the side, you see some rescuing figure or apparatus or vehicle that's coming to deliver. And the audience rejoices because at last, and with thunderous might, and right when it ought to be, rescue has come. He says in verse 10, he rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind associating the Lord with the cherubim is natural in the days of the tabernacle again with Moses. Moses travels with the tabernacle and the Israelites and toward the promised land. And eventually Joshua and the others will take this tabernacle over. And the lid of the tabernacle, the lid of the tabernacle, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle, got to get the uh, the language right, in the uh, tabernacle's most holy place, the lid has two golden cherubim. They symbolized the presence and glory of the Lord. God rode on the cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. And in verse 11, he made the darkness his covering, his canopy around him. And this could be picturing here what Moses and the Israelites needed. They needed the Lord's presence to be mediated to them. Even when Moses said, Lord, show me your glory. It could not be quite like what Moses would desire. Moses could not endure it. He would not, as a sinner, be able to behold it. And so there is a veiledness to the arrival of God's glory that reminds us of the Israelites. It reminds us of that when we read this. Darkness is covering canopy around them, thick clouds, dark with water. We imagine here a scene of storm, mighty winds in the heavens, dark clouds, thick clouds with water. And then in verses 12 and 13, hailstones. And then in verse uh, 14, flashes of lightning. You see in the Old Testament, ancient Near Eastern worshipers in their pagan rituals in the promised land had a particular God among some of the peoples that they worshipped named Baal. And Baal was a storm God. He was believed to be the one in charge of winds and rains, of the thick clouds and the lightning strikes. And so they would need to call upon Baal and so that he would be able to bring fire or lightning from heaven. This is the whole background to the scene of Elijah Later in 1 Kings, when the prophets of Baal are calling for fire to come down, and Elijah says, well, let's think of it this way. The God that answers by fire, that's the true God. And of course, the prophets of Baal have no idol that answers them. But the living God, the God of Elijah, and the God of David, this God oversees all His creation. Baal is a false God. Who is it that is over the winds and the rains, and the lightning and the hail? It is Yahweh, not Baal. Yahweh is the true and living God. And in verse twelve, out of heaven the brightness before Him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through His clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens; the Most High uttered His voice. Hailstones and coals of fire. He sent out His arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. The arrows are a picture of the lightning. They have a point at the end, just like drawing a lightning bolt with the point at the end. So God casting forth his arrows, that's mightier than all the arrows of any of the armies that ever faced David. He's saying God has better weapons than you do. He's sovereign over all. Scattering them, routing them, that's a reference to the enemies. God is able to deliver David from what David is unable to wrest himself from. God comes and with this storm picture and this heavenly descent, we see here in verse 15, the channels of the sea Were seen. The foundations of the world laid bare at your rebuke. Think for a moment here, the channels of the sea, and then all of a sudden the ground laid bare. Here's water that seems to be parted. And that once again reminds us of the days of Moses. We think not just of the Sinai echoes, but even the Red Sea echoes, because the Israelites had more than they could handle. And here they were against the Red Sea, being encroached upon by the mighty Egyptians. And what do they need? They need the Lord. They need the Lord and he rebukes by his mighty power the sea and the channels of the sea and lays bare the dry ground for them to go upon. David is saying, Lord, do it again. Lord, here I am and behold my life. You love me, Lord. I love you, Lord. You're faithful, O God. Come, O God, with your delivering power. Verses 7 to 15 depict the descent of the Lord with might and strength. This is the God of the Exodus in action. In verses 16 through 19, the rescue of the psalmist is described as God having arrived, so to speak. So this is a language to depict closing in of of space, which, of course, is just the, the human effort to say God comes with rescuing power. But it's not to imply that God was never not with David. So it's a way from a human perspective to speak of God's arrival. And it says in verse 16, it says in verse 16, He sent from on high, He took me, He drew me out of many waters. Doesn't that make you think of Moses? In Exodus chapter 2, we're told that Moses was placed in a little basket... He's laid by the reeds of the Nile River. And it tells us that he was brought to Pharaoh's daughter and became her son. And she named him Moses because she drew him out of the waters. Another another connection to the Moses story. What I'm trying to show you is that along Psalm, Psalm 18, why is David using the language that he's praying? Because David knows earlier scripture. In the earlier stories and scriptures and scenes from the the Bible are influencing the way David is praying in light of the steadfast love of the Lord. Moses was drawn up out of the waters. And David says, you know what God did? He did that for me. He did that for all of us who were facing destruction and death. And if we have taken our refuge in the Lord Jesus, then we say with David, he drew me out. That's what he did. Here I was, consumed in the mire of my transgression and sin. And the Lord, he drew me out with delivering grace. He took me and he drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me. For they were too mighty for me. You've got to listen to David's testimony here. He doesn't say, well, when I look at my abilities and I look at theirs, I think we're a pretty even match. He says in verse 17, they were too mighty for me. I'm not facing foes that in some way can be brought down and subdued by earthly cleverness and strategies. He said, I needed Yahweh. And he rescued me from my strong enemy. They hated me. They opposed me. They were too mighty for me. And then God came. In verse 18, they confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. Not only should we think of the days of Moses and the Israelites and Sinai and the Exodus. We should think about what God was doing with the Israelites after delivering them. He was bringing them to an allotted place. A land of promise. And that's echoed here in verse 19. Where is David placed? David says, He brought me into a broad place. He rescued me because He delighted in me. The compassion and mercy of God is an expression of His covenant faithfulness, and David is the recipient of that. David says, Why did God rescue me here? Because He delighted in me. He poured His mercy upon me. His grace was what I experienced and was delivered by. And where did He bring me into a broad place? This is to contrast, I think, the narrow, tight spot David was in. Uh, we we sometimes talk about it this way: if we're in a uh, in a real bind, we might say, "Boy, I was in a tight spot. I was in a tight spot. Felt everything pressing in. It Felt really narrow." And uh, David talks here as a broad place to be the place where he was brought, which means it's contrasting the tight spot he was in and now liberation, freedom. Deliverance. And for the Israelites, they were were brought out of captivity in Egypt. They were taken through the wilderness by the sustaining grace of God, and they were brought into the broad place of the land, the place of inheritance and mercy of God. He brought me into a broad place. He rescued me because He delighted in me. The last section we want to look at this morning is verses 20 through 29. David has told us who God is to him with a very long list of titles. He said, here's what these forces against me were like. They were like death and destruction, torrents and shield, snares all around me, confronting me. And then God came. He came in my distress. He arrived with such power and glory, such Fury against his enemies that nothing in heaven and earth could stop him. He came with such power that I have to borrow the language of Mount Sinai to tell you about it. And when he came, he delivered me. He did what he came to do. He rescued rescued me from my greater enemies who were not greater than him. And in verses 20 through 29, more grounding for the rescue is given for us. More reasons behind it. You see, David is in covenant with Yahweh. It's like we could say of David how Paul says to us as readers in Romans chapter 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? And David is saying in Psalm 18, if God is for me, who can be against me? The snares of death? No, they can't compare. What about the torrents of destruction? Nope, he's mightier than them too. Well, what about Baal, the storm god? Yeah, he's not even a thing. So in other words, the mighty God of heaven and earth, he is the hope of David and the hope of all God's people. He says in verse 20, the Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He rewarded me. And at this point, like in some other Psalms, the reader might think, well, I was going along quite nicely here. And then it talks here about like David's righteousness and the cleanness of his hands. What is he talking about? We know David is a sinner. But the context of the Psalms will often be David facing Enemies who as a righteous sufferer he's facing having not provoked them. Not because he is in some way sowing and therefore reaping judgment from the Lord through these enemies. These are people who have allied against David and he's the righteous king. In other words, he's clean... Of any charges that would be brought against him provoking these skirmishes. If all these mighty enemies and torrents of destruction have come around David, David says, I didn't bring that about. The Lord knows my heart, and He knows I'm walking before Him in integrity, and He knows that I'm a righteous sufferer in this case. So, what does God do? Well, God comes to my aid, He deals with me according to my righteousness and the cleanness of my hands. The cleanness of my hands is to contrast someone whose hands are dirty because of immoral, unethical behavior where there is some kind of consequence that follows. And you think, well, you know, those are those are the kinds of things that can result by acting foolishly with one's words and plans and hands as a metaphor here. David says, listen, my enemies are coming against me, but my hands are clean. My enemies are assailing me from every side, and the torrents of destruction overwhelm me, and my enemies are too mighty for me. But I have integrity in this regard. So the Lord is for David. God is for me, who can be against me? He explains his integrity. I'm not just reading that into verse 20. Listen to David's testimony of verse 21 and 22. For I have kept the ways of the Lord. Now, where does David learn about the ways of the Lord? We've already seen language that suggests David knows the earlier scriptures. He knows the stories of Moses. He knows the stories of Joshua. He knows about the Exodus. He knows the covenants of Yahweh. In other words, in verse 20 and 20, verses 21 and 22, the ways of the Lord and the rules and statutes of God, they in David's heart. He's like the blessed man of Psalm 1. And in Psalm 1, we read Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law, he meditates day and night. And then what's the result of that? He's like a tree planted by streams of water. It yields its fruit in its season, its leaf doesn't wither, and all that it does prospers, and the wicked are not so. Can't we understand then Psalm 18 to be David's testimony that Psalm 1 is true? That he's living out the principles and wisdom and guidance of Psalm 1? He says, I've kept the ways of the Lord. This is not a claim to sinlessness. The writer of Psalm 18 is the writer of Psalm 51. David is not claiming sinlessness. He is saying, I love you, Lord, my strength. I love you. I want your ways to be my ways. I want your word to guide my paths. Friend, that's what a believer wants. We're in Christ Jesus, not because we came morally unblemished and we're like, all right, Lord, you know, you're going to get a really good deal if you save us because, you know, we're we're pretty great. Instead, we come to the Lord with our shame and our sin He welcomes all who come to Him that He might count toward us by faith His righteousness. And therefore we are in Christ our refuge. And friend, what this means is we must now be those whose delight is in the law of the Lord. We want His ways to be our ways. His wisdom to guide our paths. But if you think to yourself, well, I'm a Christian. I think I am. But I don't desire... To learn and love and follow the ways and wisdom of Christ. And the scripture would push back upon your confession. Because the people of God are those who love God. They love his word. They want to walk in a way that glorifies God. They don't want to live in rebellion against God. They don't want to cherish wickedness in their heart. They want to follow Christ. And in Psalm 18 he says, I've kept your ways and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me and his statutes I did not put away from me. This means when someone says, well, friend, this is what the word of God says. You know what the believer's heart response is going to need to be? The believer's heart response is, if this is God's word and God's wisdom, then I want to humbly receive it. But the fool says, don't tell me what the Bible says. I don't care about those words. Don't give me those commandments. I don't want to hear about the statutes of God. I know what I'm doing. I'm going to live my life my way. The fool doesn't want the wisdom of God. David says, I'm not like that. I've not wickedly departed. Lord, your ways I love. Your wisdom I want. In verse 23, I was blameless before God. I kept myself from my guilt. So in verse 24, the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. I think David is saying, I'm calling upon the Lord as one who loves God. And God hears my prayer." In verse 25, with the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. With the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. Well, that pair of verses ends in an unexpected way. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. We think, well, thank you, Lord. You know, if we've come before you as those who seek to live, to love God and to love neighbor. We know that your favor is upon us. Your face shines upon us. Your blessing is upon our lives. But the end of verse 26, after talking about the merciful, the blameless, the pure. He says, with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. The crooked. The crooked are those whose hearts imitate the wickedness of the world. The crooked, twisted ways of the world, that's what their hearts are like. Their hearts are not following the Lord with wisdom on a path of righteousness. They don't love God. They don't want to worship God. They hate the Bible. They don't want the wisdom of God. Their hearts are crooked. So to them, God seems torturous. They're guilt-ridden. And if their conscience, unless they can manage to sear it, they're constantly confronted with their own shame. And it's agonizing for them. Some of the most miserable people I've ever met are those who want to have one foot in the Bible and one foot in the rebellion of the world. They're not happy in either one. Because they know that the world doesn't satisfy them But their heart is not convinced of the supremacy and glory and goodness of God enough to repent of their sin. And so they know just enough about God and just enough of his word to where they're absolutely undone in the mirror of it without a desire to repent of their sin. And God and the things of God seem torturous to them. Friend, this day does not have to be like those previous days. Come to God as your refuge. He need not seem burdensome to you. He comes to take and shoulder your burdens. He doesn't need to seem torturous to you. He comes to deliver and save. And He will lift you up. Friend, come to Christ. In verse 27, what we are told here is the promise. You will save a humble people. It takes humility to repent of sin. Because to turn from wickedness is to say within one's own heart, I have been going the wrong way. I need to turn. And it's to also say not only with recognition have I done what is wrong, I cannot do what is necessary to save myself. So I have full on done what will not only mean my destruction, there is no delivering myself from this. So we come humbly before God our Redeemer. And God's promises, you save those who come to you. But what about those who just have haughty eyes? Who just want to exalt themselves? They don't want to turn to God. They don't want to turn from wickedness. The haughty eyes you bring down. That's language of judgment, isn't it? It's language of judgment. It's the opposite of deliverance. The humble He saves those who come to Him. So let us come to Him. But there is none on this earth so seemingly invincible with all of their cleverness and all of their health and all of their uh, achievements and all of their tools and resources that God could not bring them down. Instead, we should be warned from the Old and New Testaments not to presume on the grace of God and not to test the Lord and not to arrogantly look upon our lives and the things of Christ and scoff and mock. Blessed are those who don't take the seat of the scoffers. Instead, he says here, the haughty eyes you bring down. In verse 28, he seems to be explaining more about why God has shown mercy and delivered and saved. He says in verse 28, for it is you, you, God, Who light my lamp? You see, in the ancient world, without electric wires running between all the walls for lights to be flipped on, you gotta gotta light the lamps. And he says, God, what is it that brings light to my life? It is you, God. It is not something other than God, it is God. It is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. What is it that David can testify of that has brought the light of life and deliverance? It is Yahweh himself. It is the living God. For by you, by you I can run against a troop. In this last verse, it's imagery of conquest, of engagement. In verse 29, by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. Think about the ancient world where the Israelites have this promise of inheritance to come, and they're going to be led by Joshua. Moses will die at the end of Deuteronomy. Joshua's going to lead them over the Jordan. They're going to face fortresses, fortresses that are mightier than their own strength, but not mightier than God. How is it that they're going to run against those troops? How is it that they're going to leap over those walls? It will be the power of God from start to finish. It will be the power of God from first to last. That God alone in his glory and faithfulness and steadfast love. Might be shown to be worthy of all praise and honor. By you I can run against a troop. By my God I can leap over a wall. That's imagery of victory. Running against the troop, leaping over the wall. That's victory language in the ancient world. So he says here, let's paraphrase it this way. Where does victory come from? And the answer is God who is light for his people. God who is strength for his people. We know that in the book of Psalms, as the Lord Jesus reads and teaches these things to his disciples, he teaches them in Luke chapter 24 that the Psalms testify of him. Here you have David writing this Psalm And I can't help but think of how the one greater than David can say these very things upon his lips. We see Jesus fulfilling the Psalms and taking the Psalms as his very prayers for himself, not only during his ministry, but especially on the cross. Jesus prays the prayers of David where the words that meant something very significant in David's life, they take on their greatest meaning on the cross when the greater son of David prays. I mean, can't the Lord Jesus on the cross say the cords of death encompassed me? The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. Those words are even more fitting on the mouth of Jesus than they are for David. As true as they were for David. Ah, but where does help come from? Well, we know that on the third day, the earth reeled and rocked and the foundations of the mountains trembled and quaked. I'm just going to borrow from Psalm 18 to tell you what happened on that first day of the week. That the God of heaven came down and thick darkness was under his feet. On the third day from the cross, he rode a cherub and flew and came swiftly on the wings of the wind. And the Lord Jesus was raised from the dead. Amen. Jesus could pray, the Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and am not wickedly departed from my God. For his rules are before me, his statutes I didn't put away. Oh, what a savior we have. And if God is for us, what can be against us? Oh, the Savior can be our refuge. For indeed, God is greater than all that comes against us. The Apostle Paul writes about this in Second Corinthians. The Apostle Paul faced so much. He loved the Lord so much and knew that in his work for the gospel and his love for neighbor and his commitment to the mission of Christ. There was much he would endure, much he would face that would be far greater than his own strength. We've heard David's testimony. Listen to Paul's. In 2 Corinthians 1, he says, We don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely Not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril. And he will deliver us on him, on him. We have set our hope that he will deliver us again. This is the Apostle Paul. Those lines, it just sounds like a psalm. It sounds like David saying... We did not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from a deadly peril. It sounds like the same thing from Psalm 18. Because the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God of Moses, the God of Joshua, the God of David, the God of Paul. And he's the living God with us today. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. He has delivered us. He will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope. Let's pray.